Well, if we could find our way to our seats. Thank you so much for uh, choosing to worship with us today. Uh, it is good to uh, come together um, and to worship the Lord together. So we're blessed to be here at the same time. Uh, we should be remembering our brothers and sisters in this church family who are not able to be here because uh, they are sick. And let's be looking after one another during uh, these days in which we find ourselves. Uh, but thank you uh, for being here, and I hope that all of us, uh, each one of you, will feel like you are here by divine appointment and that you will experience God's goodness and God's grace um, through the singing um, and the prayers, but also uh, as you hear his word uh, this morning. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19, and you'll also find the text that we're going to be looking at today uh, on your phone, the document that you've been uh, using for the worship lyrics you'll find at the bottom of that, also the sermon outline and the sermon text for today. But we're doing a verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Revelation 19, verse 11, and my goal uh, this morning is to cover verses 11 through 21, and the title of the message this morning is The Second Coming of Christ. The Second Coming of Christ. This is truly an epic passage that we're blessed to look at. Uh, this morning. This past week, uh, we have been watching our nation in retreat uh, from Afghanistan. Our passage for today has turned my thoughts to a nobler uh, occasion when the D-Day invasion of Normandy occurred June the 6th, 1944, an invasion that turned the tide of World War II. This invasion at Normandy was the largest seaborne invasion in the history of the world involving the land, air, and sea forces of the Allied armies. And the code name for this invasion or for this whole operation was Overlord. Overlord. The invasion force included 7,000 ships and landing craft manned by almost 200,000 naval personnel from eight different countries, uh, almost 133,000 troops from the Allied countries landed on D-Day by the end of that month of June. Over 850,000 men, 148,000 vehicles, and 570,000 tons of supplies had landed on Normandy's shores. As some of you know, the success of the Normandy invasion was largely because of the element of surprise. Allied intelligence specialists had created a fictitious operation called Fortitude, which left Hitler with the belief that the real invasion would be happening six weeks later 
150 miles northeast of Normandy. Even after the invasion at Normandy, Hitler still believed that there would be a bigger invasion at this other location. So he kept reinforcements there rather than sending them to Normandy. And Hitler's chief of staff later called this miscalculation Germany's fatal error that made the difference in the outcome of the war. What we will see in our passage today is the D-Day of D-Days, the greatest offensive in history when Jesus Christ, our Savior, descends from heaven and invades the earth with his armies that are following him. And this invasion from heaven will be as successful as it is swift. Yet interestingly, there will be no element of surprise regarding the location of this invasion. We have seen earlier in the book of Revelation how it is that God announces in the text of the Bible the exact spot where Christ and his armies will descend to earth and make war against the Antichrist and his armies. God even allows for the release of deceiving spirits to draw all the kings of the earth with their armies to a particular spot called Armageddon. And he spots them, all of that, and lets them all be together with the combined might of their armies and their weapons. And just in the moment when the Antichrist and his armies are the most ready for such an invasion, Christ invades the earth with his armies in that location. And he defeats them so quickly that there is not even a battle. And this is the invasion that we're going to be looking at today in our text. We've been out of the book of Revelation for a few weeks now, so let me take just a few minutes to set the stage uh, for us, and we'll be very quick with this, going all the way back to Revelation chapter 5 and moving forward, we have seen how Christ has taken the book of human destiny and broken its seven seals, uh, which are often seals of judgment. The seventh of these seals unleashes seven trumpets of judgment upon the world, and from one standpoint, the seventh trumpet heralds the seven bowls of God's wrath that we saw being poured out upon the world in Revelation chapter 16. We have seen how each of these bowls bring unprecedented calamity and judgment upon the earth, leaving the people of the earth gnawing their tongues and pain because of the plagues and the bodily sores that are afflicting them. They are left more thirsty than ever because of the scorching heat of the sun, yet the oceans and rivers and springs of the earth have been turned to blood. And rather than mankind experiencing this and then repenting of their sins, they blaspheme the God of heaven thereby showing how ripe they are for the judgment of God. 
And then the sixth bowl comes in Revelation chapter 16, verses 1, or chapter 16, verse 12. And as a part of John's description of this particular bowl of God's wrath, he says in verse 13 and 14, and you might want to look at that, he says, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. As for where these demonic spirits seduce the kings of the earth, and their armies to gather. John tells us in Revelation 16, 16, he says, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon, which literally means hill country of Megiddo, meaning that they gathered here together in between the mountains that surround the valley that Megiddo is in. And then observe what happens beginning in verse 17 of Revelation 16. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones about 100 pounds each came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because it... This plague was extremely severe. This is how Revelation 16 ends. And then John begins to see some visions that he tells us about in chapters 17 and 18 that provide detail to our understanding of the fall of Babylon. But from a strictly chronological standpoint, the very next thing that happens after chapter 16 concludes is what we see in our passage today. In verses 1 through 10 of Revelation 19, we see heaven rejoicing over the fact that Babylon is destroyed and that the moment of Christ's coming has finally arrived. And starting in verse 11, we have the moment of Christ's coming narrated for us. In this passage today, we do not see a Savior in retreat, but a Savior and his army storming the skies and winning the greatest victory that's ever been won, and it is a sight to behold. You might want to write this reference down in Isaiah 64, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah prays to God and says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble 
at your presence. That's his longing. And you and I pray a more sedate prayer when we say to God in the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Either way, these prayers are answered in our passage today. And so the way we're going to break down our study of this text is we'll observe six stunning sights. Six stunning sights that John records for us in connection with Christ's second coming at the end of the age. And the first of these stunning sights is this. Number one, John sees Jesus coming from heaven to judge and wage war. John sees Jesus coming from heaven to judge and to wage war. Observe what John says in verse 11. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. It's interesting as you read this verse that John first makes note of the fact that he sees a white horse. That's where his eyes go to first. And then he talks about the one sitting on that horse. Some commentators take this horse to be symbolic only but I prefer to take John at face value as speaking of a real horse that Jesus is seated upon, obviously a very special horse. There is no doubt, though, that this white horse represents victory and royalty and righteousness. John observes that Jesus is sitting on this white horse, and John knows that it is Jesus because he says in verse 11 that he who sat on it is called faithful and true. Back in Revelation 3, verse 14, Jesus refers to himself as the faithful and true witness. And here John is observing that this is the same person, Jesus Christ, who is absolutely faithful and true in every imaginable way, as opposed to the Antichrist, who is untrustworthy and false in every way. And in his coming, Jesus is showing how faithful and how true he is to every promise that he has made. John also notes that as Jesus comes, it is Look at the text, in righteousness he judges and wages war. Jesus is not coming on this occasion to make friends. He is coming to make war. And when he judges and wages war, he does so in a perfectly righteous and flawless way, dispensing judgment and giving war to those who dare to make war against him. John continues his description in verse 12 and says, His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. These flaming eyes of Jesus 
speak partly of the all-seeing power of Christ who is able to see right through the heart of every person. But these flaming eyes also in this moment display and reveal something of his holy zeal against sin and his resolve to judge. These flaming eyes tell us something about his wrathful intentions. There is no mercy in these eyes at this moment for those that he is coming to make war with, only furious wrath as we will see. John then says in verse 12, and on his head are many diadems or crowns would be a word that we would use. Diadems are crowns that represent the authority of kings and their right to rule and do as they please. Only kings wear diadems. And the fact that Jesus is wearing many diadems speaks of his ultimate sovereignty and means that he has been given all authority to do as he pleases in this moment. As verse 12 continues, John then says, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. That's interesting, right? You say, Milton, what is that name? Well, don't ask me that. John says that no one knows except Jesus. Evidently, John sees a name written on Christ, but he's not able to make out what that name is. We don't know specifically where this name is written on Jesus' person, but John says it is written on him somewhere. And as John looks upon what is written on Jesus, he knows enough to know that it's a name of Jesus, and he knows enough to know that Jesus obviously knows what that name is, but John also knows that no one else knows that name except Jesus himself. And just from this fact alone, John is alerting us to the fact that there is more to Jesus than any of us know. Yes, there are wonderful things about Jesus revealed in Scripture that we can learn and rejoice in, but there is more to Jesus than we know and than we can know. And at his second coming, guys, we're all going to see a side of Jesus that none of us have ever seen before. John continues his description in verse 13 and says about Jesus, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Almost certainly, the blood on Jesus' robe here is the blood of the wicked, whom Christ is slaying in this moment of his second coming with a slaughter that will be more fully described in the verses to come. Speaking of his robe dipped in blood, is John's way of saying that it looks to him like Jesus' robe has been completely submerged in a pool of blood and is now stained completely with that blood. And this kind of description would fit with Old Testament passages like Isaiah 
chapter 63, verses 2 through 6, and you can write that reference down, Isaiah 63, verses 2 through 6, where Jehovah speaks of his own garments being stained with blood as he treads the winepress of his wrath against the wicked. At the end of verse 13, John says of Jesus, and his name is called the Word of God, meaning that Jesus is the ultimate word that God has spoken, the ultimate word through which God has communicated himself to the world. As Warren Wiersbe says, and I quote, just as we reveal our minds and hearts to others by our words, so the Father reveals himself to us through his Son, the incarnate word, unquote. And we should find it significant that Jesus is being called the word of God in this amazing moment. John rightly called Jesus the word in John chapter 1, at the beginning of his gospel account, when writing about Christ's first coming to the world in grace. But here John is wanting us to know that Jesus is just as much the word of God right now as he comes to the world in wrath. In both comings, Jesus perfectly reveals the Father and serves as God's perfect message to the world whether that message be grace or wrath. These things about Jesus represent some of the first things that John notices as he beholds Christ coming from heaven to earth, but they're not the only things that he notices. And this brings us to the second stunning sight that John records for us in connection with Christ's second coming at the end of the age. Number two, John sees heavenly armies following Jesus. John sees heavenly armies following Jesus. Observe what John says in verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Notice how John describes those who are following Christ at his second coming as armies plural. His language also makes it very clear that these armies originated in heaven. These are heavenly armies that have come from heaven. Who are the ones that compose this, these armies who are said to be clothed in fine linen, white and clean? Well, uh, if you read the commentators, you get a couple ideas Thankfully, we don't have to choose between them. Uh, they could include angels. In fact, back in Revelation chapter 15, in verse 6, we were told about seven angels who came out of the temple to blow their trumpets of judgment, and we were told then that they, these angels, were clothed in linen, clean and bright. So one might surmise that these armies following Christ include angelic beings, and this would fit with passages like 2 Thessalonians 1.17, which speaks of Christ being, and I quote, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, unquote. So angels, perhaps, perhaps likely are included in these armies 
That being true, we have stronger indication that those who compose these armies are the saints of God. In fact, back up in verse 8 of this chapter, John speaks of the bride of Christ and says that it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Back in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus says, He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. Even more clear is Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, where John looked into the future at Christ's second coming, and he says, and I quote, The Lamb will overcome the beast and the false prophet because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Clearly speaking about the saints being with Christ at his coming. So we are very safe in assuming that the saints of God here in Revelation 19 are among the armies following Christ at his second coming. And this means that you, if you're a believer in Jesus... You're in this text. You're in this picture that John is seeing. You will be in this army following Christ if you have believed in him. At the end of verse 14, John tells us that these armies were following him on white horses. This tells us that Jesus is out front. Jesus is not the kind of commander or general who sends out his troops ahead of him to bear the brunt of the battle for him while he stays behind and just gives the orders. No, in this battle, Jesus leads the charge. In fact, we're going to see he's the one who does all the fighting. And his armies will have nothing to do but to watch him fight the battle for them. And none of the saints in these armies will get a single drop of blood upon their fine linen robes that are white and clean because Jesus will do it all. Notice also that John says that the saints will be following Jesus on what? On white horses. And again, not to beat a dead horse here, but there are commentators that you'll read who are quick to... Thank you who are quick to write off these horses as symbolism. But again, I think it's very likely that God is letting John see these armies riding on white horses because that's truly how it will be. Anyway, as John continues describing this invasion from heaven, he turns his attention back to Christ who is leading the charge. And this brings us to the third stunning Sight that John records in connection with Christ's second coming at the end of the age. Number three, John sees Jesus striking down the nations in wrath. John sees Jesus striking down the nations in wrath. Observe what John continues to describe in verse 15. John says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Back in chapter 1 of Revelation, John saw a vision of Jesus in which out of Jesus' mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Here he simply describes it as a sharp sword. Either way, it's not a sword you want to be on the receiving end of on this day of Christ's second coming because John says here that from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. In other words, with this sword, Christ will cut his enemies to pieces with the result that they collapse to the ground dead. John then quotes from Psalm 2, verse 9, where the Hebrew text says that the Messiah will break them with a rod of iron. The ancient Greek Septuagint translation of Psalm 2.9 says that the Messiah will rule or shepherd them with a rod of iron. And it's from that Septuagint translation that John is quoting here. The point is that Jesus will take his rod of iron and will do to these armies of the nations what a shepherd would do with wild animals and thieves who come in and try to hurt or steal one of his sheep. He will break them and he will crush them in order to keep the Antichrist and his armies from their evil intentions. And then after he sets up his kingdom on earth, he will shepherd the nations with an unyielding and unflinching justice against evil and evildoers. Speaking of what Jesus is doing in this moment, though, John continues in verse 15, and speaking of Jesus, he says he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Through his actions, Jesus is squeezing every ounce of divine wrath deserved, and he's unleashing that wrath upon the nations who have rebelled against God Almighty and have refused to repent of their rebellion. This wrath here is literally described as angry wrath. Our translation says fierce wrath. You could translate it angry wrath. Speaking of wrath that is angrily delivered. And it is the angry wrath of God Almighty whose wrath cannot and will not be restrained in this moment. And in verse 15, John literally says, he himself treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus does not leave this task to anyone else to do this. He does it himself. Only he could be trusted with such a task anyway. John then says in verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Some people look at the language John uses here and they wonder if this name is written or tattooed on Jesus' actual thigh, which is exposed to view here. But notice John's language that he uses here in this verse. He says, and on his robe and on his thigh. 
he has a name written, indicating that the name is on his robe and thigh, which likely indicates that this name is written on the part of Jesus' robe that falls across his thigh. And the name that is written, John says, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And notice the singular word name here. This isn't two names of Jesus. This is one name. King of Kings and Lord of Lords is the name, singular, that John is observing here. This expression, King of Kings and Lord of Lords is a superlative expression. In the Hebrew language, when something is described, for example, as the song of songs, what is meant is that is the ultimate song. When something is described as the holy of holies, it means that that is the ultimately holy place. So this name for Jesus means that he's the ultimate king, the ultimate Lord. There are no rivals to him. There are no competitors. And there is nothing that he is coming against right now that will pose even the slightest challenge to his might and his authority. I should also say that when we see Jesus bearing this name, we should appreciate The fact that in the Old Testament, Jehovah is called something similar. Jehovah is called the God of gods and the Lord of kings in Daniel chapter 2, verse 47. In Deuteronomy 10, 17, Jehovah is called the Lord of lords. So for Jesus to be given this title, King of kings and Lord of lords, is a profound indication of his deity. Jesus is Jehovah, and he has come to wreak havoc on his enemies and to bring his kingdom to earth. And this brings us to the fourth stunning sight that John records in this passage in connection with Christ's second coming at the end of the age. Number four, John sees an angel calling birds to consume the flesh of those whom Christ will defeat. John sees an angel calling birds to consume the flesh of those whom Christ will defeat. Observe what John sees and hears in verse 17. He says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. From John's vantage point of earth, it appears to him that this angel is standing in the sun with the sun as the backdrop for where this angel is standing. And John hears this angel cry out with a loud voice speaking to all the birds flying in midheaven. And he says, verse 17 at the end, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. 
Notice all the things that are mentioned here that will die and be consumed by these birds. Kings will die. Commanders will die. Mighty men will die. Horses will die. Those who sit on the horses will die. Free men will die. Slaves will die. The small and the great will die in this great slaughter at Christ's second coming. There will be so many bodies lying around that there will not be opportunity to bury them all and their flesh will be devoured by these birds that are summoned for this massive supper. The angel's announcement that we read here is gruesome and it's powerful, guaranteeing before the battle has even started that the end is certain, so certain that God is already thinking about the cleanup operation. There are some commentators that you would read who are squeamish about the language that is used here. One commentator says, and I quote, this is a bloodthirsty picture, far more in line with Old Testament expectations than with the gospel of Jesus Christ, unquote. But I agree with the commentator Robert Mounts, who says, and I quote, it is not true that with the coming of the gospel age that the God of the Old Testament decided to prove to people that he really was a gentleman after all and thus dispensed with any further recourse to judgment. The good news, he says, of the New Testament is not that there is no divine punishment for sins, but that people need not bear the just punishment for their sin because Christ has paid the price on their behalf. Only when people refuse this atonement from Christ must they bear the penalty for their wickedness. And that penalty is awful. And that's what's happening here to those who refused God's grace, the testimony of his witnesses that were sharing the gospel on earth, who ignored the message of the angel God sent shortly before this, preaching the everlasting gospel to the inhabitants of all the world. Those who refused that gospel and refused the salvation offered through Christ and who choose to make war with Christ instead on this occasion, to them belongs the unmitigated fury and judgment of God. This brings us to the fifth stunning sight that John records in this passage in connection with Christ's second coming at the end of the age. Number five, John sees the beast, or the Antichrist, and his armies assembled against Christ and his army. John sees the beast and his armies assembled against Christ and his army. Look at verse 19. John says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. You might think that they would stand in awe of Christ as they see him coming and yield and bow to him. But no, John says, I saw them and he's probably amazed as he writes these words. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled 
to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. What a pathetic bunch this is. They actually think they have a chance. The Antichrist probably thinks right now that he is invincible. After all, he's already died and been raised to life. Back in chapter 11, he made war against God's two invincible witnesses and succeeded in killing them. The Antichrist has conquered every foe and he has received the worship of the people of the world who were once saying back in Revelation 13.4, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? Well, it seems like all of this has gone to his head. And he seems to like his chances against Christ. He has no clue that his arms are way too short to box with Jesus. And as we said back when we were in Revelation 16, we don't know what the initial motives of all of these kings of the earth and their armies were in gathering together in the land of Israel during this moment, but whatever their initial motives might have been, what we see now is that when they see Jesus and his armies descending from heaven, their united purpose is now to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And notice the singular word for army. Yes, composed of many units, you could call it armies because it's so many but they are all united behind their commander, Jesus Christ. But the Antichrist and all those following him, they hate Jesus and the army of saints that he is coming with. And these earthly kings and their armies are now going to dare to fight against Jesus and his armies. Why will they make war with Christ and his armies? Well, because I think they know in this moment that Christ's kingdom is right now coming to earth. And they don't want that to happen at all. They despise Jesus Christ. They don't want him to rule over them. So rather than welcoming Christ and giving him the triumphal entry that he deserves, they turn against him to make war against him, just like the religious rulers did 2,000 years ago at Christ's first coming. In Christ's first coming, his enemies succeeded in fighting against him and killing him, though he was raised from the dead three days later and then later ascended to heaven. But the outcome of this second coming of Christ will be far different it is not Christ who will be killed in this conflict, but everyone who dares to raise their hand against him will be killed. And this brings us to the final stunning sight that John records in this passage in connection with Christ's second coming at the end of the age. Number six, John sees Christ utterly defeat the beast and his armies. John sees Christ utterly defeat the beast and his armies. If you were expecting, as you're reading the narrative here, if you were expecting an epic battle to be described in the following verses, you would be sorely disappointed. There is no 
battle to speak of. There is no ebb and flow in this great battle. There's not even the noise of battle from the clashing of these two forces. There's not a battle described here because the defeat happens so fast. Chuck Swindoll says it beautifully. He says that when Christ returns in this moment, quicker than a person can say the word Armageddon, the war will already be over. In verse 20, John says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone or sulfur. These two men, the Antichrist and the false prophet, will be the first inhabitants of the lake of fire. The beast was the blasphemous and arrogant Antichrist who ruled the world during these years of the tribulation period. And the false prophet was the man who performed signs and wonders and deceived the whole world into worshiping the beast and following him. And these two men will be taken into custody and thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. This is the well-deserved fate to befall the beast and his false prophet. And we will later learn that this is the place where Satan will be cast also along with all those who rebel against God without repentance. As for the rest of those who sided with the beast and the false prophet in this battle, John says in verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The language that John is using here tells us that it will be the sword of Jesus that kills every last one of these wicked soldiers of the Antichrist, which means you and I are left with nothing to do. I don't know if Jesus will give us all a little weapon to carry just so we look important as we return from heaven with him and maybe feel useful, but none of those weapons would be needed because Jesus is going to do it all. This will be one of those moments when all we have to do is stand still and see the salvation of the Lord as he fights for us. You and I, we will not be the hero of this battle. Jesus will be. And my goodness, what will it be like for us to see Jesus unleashing such fury on his adversaries as we all behold a side of him that none of us have ever seen before? How heroic Jesus will be in this moment to us. How much we will love him and stand in awe of him, watching him act with such brutal precision upon his enemies. How thankful we will be that he has saved us and shows us only 
his gracious side. We will marvel at how this one who is so tender and gracious with us, who is such a joyful lover of our souls, is at the same time such a strong and wrathful warrior against the unrepentant wicked. When we see Jesus in all of his wrathful power and vengeance on this occasion of his second coming, we will know the truth of the psalmist when he says in Psalm 2, pay homage to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled, and blessed are all who find refuge in him. As for what becomes of the bodies of these enemies of Christ, John tells us that the birds were filled with their flesh. As for what becomes of them eternally, we learn back in Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11, that anyone who worships the beast in his image and receives the mark of the beast will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. What an awful fate for those whose flesh is right now being consumed by these birds who have descended upon the scene. As for the birds feasting on the flesh of these enemies of Christ in this moment, even Jesus foretells of this moment you can write down Matthew 24, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Those are the words of Jesus in his first coming, as he warns, he gives fair warning to the world of what will happen at his second coming. What an awful and yet glorious day this will be at Christ's second coming, when Christ returns to the world, as we see described in our passage for today. This will be a day of epic proportions, the likes of which the world has never seen and we can't even begin to fathom the full greatness of this occasion. We know from Revelation 14, 20 that blood is going to flow on this day for 200 miles throughout the land of Israel from the north to the south as Jesus treads the winepress of the fierce or angry wrath of God against the kings of the earth and their armies as he slaughters them wherever they are assembled throughout the full length of the land of Israel on this occasion of his second coming. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a, a Christian and you hear all this and you say, Pastor Mount, do you really believe these things are going to happen? This is kind of fantastical, you know. My answer is that we take God at his word. We believe the word of God when it tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin. In fact, hundreds of years before he was born of a virgin, the Bible prophesied he would be born of a virgin. That's impossible, and it happened. 
We believe the Bible when it tells us that Jesus walked on water and went about doing miracles of healing the sick and even raising the dead, and that he willingly died on a cross to save sinners like you and me. We believe the word of God when it tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day and then ascended to heaven where he now reigns from on high. And we believe the word of God when it tells us that Jesus is going to return to earth one day, just like this text tells us that he will. And I will happily put those beliefs up against any of the crazy stuff that people believe nowadays. In fact, a day is coming when people will ask, after all of this has happened, how could anyone not have believed this? The question I have for you is, are you right with Jesus? I hope you are. Have you believed in him? Have you signed up to be on his side in this great conflict in this future day? In fact, think about it this way. If you are a Christian, realize that John sees you in our passage today. You are one of the ones on white horses who are following Jesus when he comes to make war with his enemies and to establish his kingdom on earth. And I point this out to you because it teaches us something about what it actually means to follow Jesus. When a person decides today, for example, to follow Jesus, they are agreeing to follow Jesus all the way to the cross, all the way through life, And all the way to this very day, described in our passage, when Jesus returns from heaven and judges the wicked and brings his kingdom to earth. You see, we don't just believe in Jesus so that we can go to heaven when we die. We believe in Jesus so that we can follow Jesus when he returns to earth at his second coming. In fact, we can say that this is a part of what conversion to Christ entails. It's signing up and agreeing to be on his side at his second coming. It's volunteering to be in this army that comes with him on this occasion of his second coming. So my question to you is, have you signed up? Are you enlisted on Jesus' side Or are you undecided? Remember that Jesus said, you are either with me or against me. And I'm here to tell you that it's a bad idea to be against Jesus. Because that's a war you're never going to win. A passage like what we have looked at today shows us that we will either ride in the chariot of Christ's salvation or we will be crushed under its wheels. Speaking of these earthly armies trying to make war with Jesus at his second coming, Chuck Swindoll says this, and I quote, how foolish it will look when those rulers point their guns and missiles at the all-powerful creator who spoke the entire universe into existence. How foolish, but how like fallen humanity always overestimating their abilities, forever proud of their technology, 
yet never coming to terms with their own weakness before the all-powerful, all-knowing Lord of the universe, unquote. Don't be like them. Most of us like drama. Uh, So when we're watching a sporting event, uh, most of us tend to prefer that the game be close to make it interesting. Sometimes I don't even care who wins. I just want to see a close match with a dramatic finish. But this battle that we see in our passage today is not one of those. It's not even close. As J.B. Phillips says, and I quote, in fact, there will be no war at all. In the sense that we think of war, Jesus speaks a word and the war is over. That's what happens in our passage today. This war at Christ's second coming will end swiftly and decisively and pose not the least bit of difficulty to Jesus because that's the power of Jesus Christ. That's the power of his name. That's the power of his word. And you will serve yourself very well by believing in him and calling upon his name and receiving the salvation that only he can give to you. And then letting him, this powerful one, speak powerful words, good words of salvation and grace and forgiveness and love. Speak those words over you and into you. And that's all available to you this morning if you'll come before Jesus and believe in him and call upon his name. Just in closing, for you who are Christians, I I want you to be encouraged by what we have seen today as sobering as this is. As the nations rage nowadays and as current events seem to be taking ever-darkening turns that leave us alarmed. This passage reminds us that every single thing that is happening in our world today is serving to lead or usher the world to this climactic moment when Christ descends from heaven and overwhelmingly triumphs in the end. Christ wins this thing in the end. As the people of Afghanistan have learned in recent weeks, this is not the time to be putting your trust in princes or in men or in human governments. This is not the time to be putting your trust in the United States of America. This is the time to look to Jesus and to put our trust in him. Of only him can it be said In perfect righteousness, he judges and wages war in a mistake-free way. And he is the only one who truly has the power to finish what he has started with perfect righteousness and justice. Though we have great cause to grieve and lament so much of what we see happening around us nowadays, at the same time, we can smile We can smile because we know a secret. And the secret we know is that Christ is in control and he will triumph in the end. We also know 
that there will be brothers and sisters of ours in Christ riding on white horses right next to us as we follow Christ at his second coming, wearing the same white linen jersey that we will be wearing. And I want you to let that thought sink deep into you because if it does, we wouldn't be fighting with each other. We are on the same team and we ought to live and treat one another as if this is so. So as you leave today and you get out there and go into this week, I plead with you to act like you know something. Act like you know these things to be true, that all things are leading to this ultimate victory at Christ's second coming, and that those who believe in him will be united together behind him. Let's act like we know these things to be true and work together in being difference makers for Christ in this present moment. Let us speak aloud. Let us warn and evangelize others and call the world to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us unite our voices with one message while we still have the chance in saying to people, pay homage to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. But blessed are all who find refuge in him. Let's pray together and ask God to help us to do this. Lord, you are a mighty Savior. We are blessed to just be your followers. Your salvation is great. And on the day of your second coming, when we see a sight of you we have never seen before, we're all, we all who know you will be so thankful for your mercy and grace toward us. We will know what we deserve for our sins and yet be thankful that you have looked upon us with grace and mercy. And I pray that if there's any here this morning, Lord, who have never yet run to you as their strong tower to find refuge in you, that they would run to you now and know that you stand ready to forgive. Your wrath is against those who refuse to repent, but you have nothing but mercy and grace and love and salvation for those who humble themselves before you, acknowledge their sin, their helplessness, and call upon your name alone for salvation. May that be happening in different places in this very room, Lord. As people are calling upon your name for this salvation that only you can give. Then help us all, Lord, those of us who know you. As we read the headlines and see what's unfolding in our day. 
may we not fail to read these headlines that we find in the book of Revelation. And may we see current day headlines against the backdrop of these greater headlines that serve as our steady anchor and keep us stable and enable us to smile through our tears as we behold the sin and the wickedness and the brokenness of this world that we're in. You tell us of these coming things because you intend for them to impact us today because you want us today to live in light of this coming event of your second coming. So help us today to live in light of your glorious second coming. And I ask these things, Lord, for myself and for all of my brothers and sisters here in this church body so that your name might be glorified through us all. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.